prayer list in the bulletin uh, and be praying for folks regularly in regard to these needs that are being made known to us. Um, also, we share these on our weekly email as well. And so uh, if you'd like to be, again, getting our email, uh, you can, you'll see all that information there as well. Okay. Well, that being said, uh, I will leave you and the bulletin to take a look at what else is going on uh, during the course of the week here at our church. And so why don't you stand with me? And we're going to read the Word of God together as we get started. And for this morning's uh, reading, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn to verses 11 through 14. We're going to read these together. All right, ready to roll. Let's start in verse 11 of Romans 13. Let's read together. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Father, we thank you for instructions like these. We thank you for encouragements like these. And we thank you most of all that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, which even makes it possible for us to do these things. So thank you, Lord, for redeeming us and setting us free from what we once were and continuing to work within us to make us that which you desire. So we thank you for this time and pray that the teaching of your word would serve toward that end, that here in this place you'd find hearts and minds that are ready to engage and receive that which your word has to say and that your Holy Spirit would be able to move freely here and take the seed of that word and plant it deep within our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your deep love for us and that you'd invite us to experience these times of opening your word and interacting with you as the Holy Spirit takes, again, your word and teaches it to to us, illuminates it to us, and helps us to learn to walk in it. So we love you and praise you and ask you to bless our time toward the end that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. Well, I will invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. And that's where we're going to spend our time in verses 17 through 24 this morning. I'm going to read the passage here. Again, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. This I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on, or that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. 
There is a word that we sometimes hear bantied about in the Christian church, and it's the word sanctification. Uh, Paul would say to the Thessalonians that this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Now, the term sanctification really has two definitions, biblically speaking. One is the initial idea of being set apart to God. Now, that's the definition of the term. The word hagios is the same root for holiness, the idea of being set apart. And when you are initially born again, when you come to Christ and respond to the gospel and you are saved, by faith you come and receive the grace and forgiveness of God afforded you by Christ in his once and for all offering on the cross, when that day comes and you now have put your trust in him, you have been positionally set apart to God. You're now his No longer are you a child of the devil. You are now a child of God the Father. You are now a born-again believer in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You've been set apart for him. That is a positional act of the Holy Spirit that takes place at a point in our lives. And we are now positionally in a different place than we once were. We've gone from darkness to light, from death to life, from the broad road that leads to destruction to the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. There's another definition or another way that the term sanctification is applied in Scripture, and that speaks of the ongoing process of being further pulled apart from the world and being brought closer and closer into the likeness of Christ. This is something that the Holy Spirit does within us over time. This is why when we become born again, there is this immediate sense of understanding that we belong to somebody different. We have this hunger for the word of God. We begin to enjoy fellowship with the saints. There's a difference that takes place immediately, but there are still this, this, this pesky problem with the flesh that still goes on and seems to have its teeth in us, its grasp upon us. It brings us great frustration and consternation as we find ourselves still struggling with things in our lives. And we ask ourselves, how can I still wrestle with this if I'm a child of God? How can I still be subject to this temptation? Or how can I still be walking in this particular thing? I don't want to do this, but I find that I just can't seem to get past it. I'm a a Christian now. I shouldn't have this struggle anymore. Well, you're in good company. Let me start by saying that. And not just with those around you. Uh, For those of you who've been privately struggling with that, thinking that nobody else around you would have any idea what you're talking about if you told them, truth of the matter is everybody around you knows what you're talking about, even though you haven't told them. We all know. But you're also in good company when it comes to some of the giants of the faith. And I would always, in this instance, point toward Paul. In Romans chapter 7 and 8, which ought to be read together, In chapter 7, Paul reveals the fact that he, the great apostle Paul, still struggles with the flesh. And it drives him to great angst. Uh, Again, it's hard to read, getting toward the end of chapter 7, when he sort of expresses and articulates that struggle. The things that I... I, you know, he, he, he's describing the law and its beauty, its lofty expression of the greatness and holiness of God. And he looks at it and says, this is so beautiful. It is so pure and so perfect. But it's my death sentence, too, because I can't live up to it. I can't be holy like that. I can't, I can't seem to put off that within me that sees the beauty and goodness of it, but yes, yet constantly falls short and does things that 
I don't even want to do, not much less know that I shouldn't do. Oh, wretched man that I, thank God he said it this way, wretched man that I am. If he said wretched man that I was, that would have been so depressing. You mean you can actually get there. Oh, man. But he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he is longing for the day when, as he would describe in 1 Corinthians 15, he would be freed from this body that is still subject to the flesh. The constant warring between spirit and the flesh, which, by the way, is the great gift of God to the believer, is that we not only... Uh, it's not just that we wrestle with the flesh, but we have the capacity to wrestle with the flesh because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We now have the ability to face each confrontation of temptation from a, with a different source of strength than just ourselves trying to make ourselves better. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But Paul recognizes that the struggle is very real. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God. In Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is no real hope of victory over the flesh if not for the victory that comes in and through Christ. And the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that he seals us is the guarantee of of our realizing the fullness of redemption. We recognize that we're not in this struggle alone, but we have help, divine help, from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And therefore, Paul could say things like walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, that sounds so daunting. Oh, if that, oh, just walk in the spirit. Oh, that's easy. It's not easy, but we can walk in the spirit. Now, let me say this at the outset. It's important that we understand the difference between these two definitions of sanctification these two biblical definitions of this idea of sanctification. Again, the first being that we are once and for all positionally set apart to Christ. That is sanctification in the positional sense. However, in the practical sense, there is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We need to understand the distinction between these two things, because if we don't, we might on the one hand think that our salvation is based on our works. We're not set apart enough to believe that we're saved. Well, we are. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. This is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, right? Or we might also believe that somehow um, that because we're not sanctified enough, we might live in this constant fear that I can never earn it and never get there. They're both kind of related ideas, but we come at it from this idea of either feeling like we can trudge ahead and get there in our own strength, or we just can never get there at all, and so... We're hopeless. It's important to recognize both. If you're a believer in Christ, you've put your trust in him, then you are his. You are set apart for him, and you will see him one day. If you're not, then that needs to come first. You can't try to work your way into salvation. It doesn't work. It never could. But again, for the believer, we need to recognize that positionally in Christ, we are now not fighting for victory over the flesh in the sense of earning salvation, but rather we're actually fighting with the Holy Spirit against our sin, but in a way really from a position of victory because we stand redeemed in Christ. And He, the Father now sees us through the advocate that ever lives to make intercession for us, the one who is Christ Jesus the righteous. We no longer have to fear that we won't stand before him one day. But there is, again, this issue 
of our, as Paul would say, our walk and our conduct. Now, the, for the Christian, just to further drive that point and move into the really where I want to go this morning, I want to lay this first so that we don't make a mistake or miscommunicate or, or leave anyone with the idea that what we're going to talk about today in any way has to do with you earning your salvation. Literally, nothing we will talk about today will have to do with earning your salvation. That can only be received by faith. However, that salvation that has been received by faith does bear fruit. That is what we're going to talk about today. We don't want to think that this is a discussion on legalism. It's not. It's a discussion on what naturally comes from the heart and therefore is expressed through the life of one who has been positionally set apart by Christ. It's the beautiful invitation to now bear witness outwardly to what God has done to us and for us and in us inwardly. He's changed us. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Now, we understand that again from a positional sense, but Paul also here in this passage talks about what that begins to look like practically. Now, we've been kind of ramping up for some of this uh, over the last coming weeks where we've talked about everything in the first three chapters pointing toward that which God has done in us and for us. And now the last three chapters begin to discuss and describe what Christ does through us as we interact on all any number of different areas of life. Again, marriage or the workplace or within the church and that kind of thing. Well, we're beginning to now talk more specifically to those things. So if at the end of the service, if I, God forbid, have left you thinking that somehow, okay, I'm not doing enough, I need to... That's not what we're talking about. Go read the first three chapters again and remind yourself, uh, hopefully, of everything we've talked about previously. But I don't want to shy away from talking about what a believer does look like. Jesus did talk about this idea a couple of times, more than a couple of times, really. But twice in the course of his ministry, he talked about the idea of judging a tree by its fruit. Now, in one context, he spoke about that in terms of false prophets, you can judge a false, uh, a good tree by its fruit, a bad tree by its fruit. What's a bad tree in regard to false prophets, false prophecies, right? Well, in another context, he spoke about it openly or in more of an open general kind of sense. The idea that when you look at a tree, you can generally tell what kind of a tree it is by the kind of fruit it produces. If I had uh, an apple tree, but it was producing pears, and I said, no, it's an apple tree, you'd look at me like I was crazy. Why are you saying it's this when it's actually that? That's the idea. Now, here's the thing. Um, none of us knows anybody's heart particularly or especially. Uh, we make the presumption, and fairly so, in, in our midst here as we talk about some of these things, that we're believers talking to believers, right? Because there's, you know, we, we've come to sort of see that in each other and understand that about each other. Well, how is that so? We've seen the fruit, it comes through in the discussions. It comes through in our interactions with one another. There's clearly change that has taken place, which helps us to sort of confirm in our minds that we are, uh, you know, uh, with a brother or sister and that kind of thing. And a lot of times you can tell when someone's not because there is no real change. They're, they're no, no different than an unbeliever in many respects. And while on the one hand, I don't know their heart, maybe they really do believe because after all, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. I sure feel a lot better when I can tell someone's a believer without just having to hope it's true because they said so. I would have told you I was a believer 
long before I ever was. So if I can just bring it, you know, just to give a, a personal example. Before I was a Christian, I was a fairly nice guy. You know, I went to church. Matter of fact, I went to a Calvary Chapel for a year before I was a believer. I heard the word of God week after week for a year before I finally came to Christ. Um, but there was a point at which I was born again. And God changed my life in ways that I would not have even anticipated. He began to clean things out of me that I didn't even recognize needed to be cleaned out. Things that I thought were good that weren't. Because as Paul describes, and we'll talk about it today, my way of thinking and where my heart was, but also my way of thinking was completely in a different place than where a believer's is. I didn't wrestle with things that y'all wrestled with as believers. I thought I was okay. And so it's important that we recognize that fruit, while not the means of achieving or attaining salvation, certainly is an outward expression of that which has taken place within us. And so when we talk about these things, we don't want to be afraid to talk about them or feel like we're moving into legalism when we talk about them. What we're talking about is a description of what a believer in general, on some consistent basis, looks like. And in this passage, we see not only what an unbeliever looks like, but there's also a description as to why they look that way, why they act that way, why they behave the way they do, why their conduct is such. And on the other side of the coin, we'll learn what a believer looks like and why, all in this passage. So let's start again in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. In other words, God is my witness that I'm speaking truth in Christ, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So already, before we get into what that looks like, there is immediately recognized a call to a different life. Now, remember the context that Paul is writing about here, writing from. He's in Ephesus, in which was kept one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That is this statue and temple to Diana. Um, the goddess that was worshipped there uh, among the primary deities in that, which meant that the city was flooded. And you see this in the book of Acts as regard to Ephesus. It was flooded with the doctrine of these false gods and of, and of, uh, and of Diana in that. Great as Diana of the Ephesians. You might remember them calling out as they were trying to shout down Paul and such. Which means that they were already very religious and were living out their lives according to their belief system. Which meant it was very important that Christians lived out their lives according to their belief system, lest they be confused with the world around them. That's a very simple but important point. Uh, and I'll just simply make this statement that in our day, much of the Christian church is trying to look as much like the world as we can because we think it is in doing that that we will attract the world to us. I don't agree with that. And I don't think we should try to be as much like the world. Should we try to relate to people and understand them? Conversationally, yes. We should remember that we're all just beggars trying to show other beggars where to find bread, right? I mean, we're all fundamentally the same as they are, except we've been redeemed. And so we already have plenty in common in terms of our you know, our humanity and that kind of thing. But we don't have to necessarily try to be like the world to win them, you know, because that'll make us more relatable. You can become so relevant to the world that you become irrelevant to the purposes of God. 
I think the world, uh, the, the church has never been more effective than when it is the most different from the world that is trying to win. Because after all, if they're, if you're just like them, then they're probably not looking at you as the answer to their problems. So Paul says, don't walk anymore like the other Gentiles or like the Gentiles or the unbelievers, those who are outside do. So there's immediately a call to a different kind of a life that should be noticeably different than those around us. Um, and he begins to describe this. The next couple of verses, he takes time to describe in a number of different expressions what that looks like and why that it looks that way. And he starts by saying, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. Now think about that. The futility of their mind. We think of the word futility as being like sort of uh, hopeless, there's no way to, it's insurmountable or something like that. The word futility in this context actually speaks of the idea of depravity or being devoid of something. They are walking in perverseness is another way that this term is associated, but they are walking in a way that their minds are devoid of truth, but rather depraved. Okay? So don't walk like those whose minds are devoid of truth. That's not a hard one to get our minds around, is it? After all, Jesus himself claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed exclusivity in that regard. In other words, he claimed to be the source of truth, the truth itself, the divine logos, as he's described by John. We understand that he is the very expression of the Almighty in bodily form, hence incarnational theology. God becomes a man and walks among us, full of grace and truth, right? Truth with a capital T. The idea that there is an absolute, objective, outside truth that you and I have now been invited to know and to embrace personally. How can we walk like those who are devoid of this and be believers? This is not just the privilege of the believer. It's the natural position of the believer. We believe in the one who is the truth. But those who are outside don't have that. Now, I like that he starts with that. I like that he immediately goes right to really the core of the thing. They are devoid of this truth or truth, you know, when we say truth, by the way, we don't mean that they don't know true things. Lou Malnati's is the greatest pizza ever created by man. That's an objective truth that anybody who's ever had it would certainly agree to. Um, but no, but we know things that are true, right? Like we know that this shirt is blue and green or whatever. We can say we know things are true. We're not just saying they're devoid of understanding that something could be true in some basic sense. But in terms of the ultimate sense of what is true, capital T, they are devoid of this. And therefore, don't walk like someone who doesn't have that foundation. He goes on, the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. A darkened understanding or the faculties of their understanding, their way of thinking and even feeling is encapsulated in this idea, is seen or experienced through a lens of darkness. Now, we're told in... Uh, oh. Is it James? You know, we see now through a lens darkly, but then face to face. We understand what he's saying is we don't have the full picture yet. Like we understand, but for a Christian, that gives us a measure of hope. One day we'll get the full picture. But here, the idea is that they can only see things through a darkened lens. They are held back by something. 
And there's kind of a building that's going on with what Paul is talking about. They are devoid of the truth, and therefore they have no apparatus by which to see the world except through darkness. This begins to already speak to the why an unbeliever acts the way they do. And so you likely have already recognized the foundation for a believer and the foundation for an unbeliever. These things are categorically different. An unbeliever has no ability to see the light of truth. They have no ability to view the world in anything but through a darkened lens. Now, let me interject at this point. That doesn't mean that every unbeliever is as sinful or awful or behaves as badly as could be. But it just tells us that fundamentally this is the position they're coming from when they do engage in the world. Which is why when we talk to unbelievers, especially nowadays, this has become so abundantly clear, this separation between truth and and error and light and darkness. Now, when we have conversations with unbelievers today... It used to be that they may be behaving in a way that is very sinful, but they would at least at a foundational level sort of understand, oh, I know this is wrong, but they have no real power to change. Nowadays, that's not really the case. Uh, Joan and I were just talking about this uh, this morning. Uh, some of the stuff that is being put out there as curriculum in schools nowadays among children is so blatantly and graphically pornographic. Now I'm going to stop there description wise, but one has to ask what kind of a person, how devoid of light and truth do you have to be to endorse and push teaching children This, there's nothing in your mind that is telling you this is wrong. You are literally living at the level of a savage animal. That is, that, that may sound extreme, although it's becoming normative now in the school system around the country. They're fighting for this. And you're a hater if you're against it. You're a problem if you're standing against it. Which, by the way, without derailing this whole message we're doing today, Christians stand up against that. You don't have to wonder if it's wrong or maybe I'm just seeing it's evil. That's not what sex was intended to be used for to begin with, nor were children given the capacity at a young age to discern anything about that world. And so to push this on a child who has no capacity to understand or respond to it and to teach them it's normative is to ruin a child from an early age and to destroy them sexually for virtually the rest of their lives. Every relationship they have, a marriage they enter into, the way they treat their own children is being colored by this. There is generational, systemic evil in this. Hopefully you didn't need me to tell you that. This is what we're talking about. A a non-believer, devoid of the Holy Spirit, sees the world in general on some some degree of that way. Not everybody, as bad as that, but that's that's what it leads to naturally. That's what it can look like naturally when all you have is the natural. This is what it means 
for a Christian to have an advantage and a benefit in the Holy Spirit's residing within us to help us to immediately or at least quickly see some of the evil that's out there and to discern it biblically and to also have now the wherewithal to stand against it, even if it comes at great personal cost. Now, again, now I'm going to one more stop here, but but that's the mindset you and I need to adopt nowadays. There's really not much room for sitting on the sidelines at all anymore. If you think it's not affecting you and your family, you need to think again. You need to think again. Um, it is true in philosophy that the slippery slope argument is the least defensible or among the least defensible because just because something goes here doesn't necessarily mean it has to go here. But the truth be told, in more cases than not, it does. And so therefore, we are where we are because of previous things that were allowed through and now we're here. Well, imagine where we're going to be next year and next year and next year. And if the Lord doesn't snatch us away, which by the way, there's no guarantee that he will snatch us away before it gets much worse. How are we going to respond to that? And by the way, I believe the rapture could happen before I finish. But I can't say that I know for sure it's going to, which means we should adopt the mindset that we're no longer on a playground, but a battleground. The lines have been drawn, and you and I are in a battle, whether we like it or not. And this is where it's fought. So, that being said, this is a practical application of the very things we're talking about this morning. I didn't mean to talk about any of that this morning. but um, So thanks, Joan. <laughs> but... Uh, Having their understanding darkened, again, they only see things through that kind of a lens. Jesus would talk about, by the way, you know, the the lamp of the body is the eye, right? But if the lamp is darkened, then how bad is that darkness, right? If all that comes in is dark, that affects us. Again, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We do have the capacity to see things in a different way, and we need to approach things uh, in this way. So... Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Alienated, estranged, shut out from the life of God. Now again, this is a big difference, right? You and I have been invited deeper into the life of God. Every day is an opportunity to walk further and further and further into this deep relationship with God that is life-changing and life-giving, that causes us to understand what it means to see things from a loftier vantage point and to recognize what we see down here, not you guys, but what we see down here as as being so worldly and, and all that kind of thing. We have that opportunity to delve deeper. The world doesn't. Before they come to Christ, they are estranged from the life of God. And Paul describes why. Again, notice what he says here. Because of uh, the ignorance that is in them and because of the blindness of their heart. So they are brought, this alienation is brought about by ignorance or a lack of understanding or knowledge of divine things, a moral kind of a blindness. Which again, if we understand the world around us, that moral blindness is more evident now than it's ever been. It's not just that this stuff goes on, it is being propagated on purpose and seen and being described as good. It is good to have drag story hour, according to the world. I don't think so, let me clear that up. But the world says it's good, and if you stand against it, then you're a hater. You're transphobic, or whatever it might be. No! That's evil. You are teaching children 
to completely confuse what genders are about and, and, and proper behavior for a, a man and a woman and all this kind of a thing. And now you're presenting it and it's being invited into places that children are supposed to be able to go and learn basics about life and education and this kind of thing. Not only that, but parents are there with them joining in the quote-unquote fun. You know, it's one thing for like a school board to sort of feel like they want to be woke or whatever, but for a parent to say, here, Molech, take my child. Here, false god, take my child at the altar of wokeness. This is about the most horrific and horrifying thing that you can imagine a parent feeling like this is good. I want my kid to be there so that they don't sort of, you know, miss out on where the world's going or something. They have a lack of moral understanding. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. We have to understand the stakes in recognizing what is truly good and acknowledging and pointing out and calling out that which is evil. And we need to be able to support that. We need to be able to make the argument. We need to be able to stand there and take what comes at us for doing it. Frankly, this is what the first century church went through. Paul is describing things that explain to believers why they're experiencing things in the world that they are. And to them, it was understood, this is the world we're going to live in. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Be of good cheer, right? I've overcome the world. Which means we face that tribulation with the understanding that, in our case, it is temporary. It is a shelf life. One day we will be with him and all of it will be over. But while we're here in this world, this is the way it's going to be. Paul said to Timothy, All of those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, which means when you stand against these things, they will hate you for it. Some people will talk about it and discuss it. Others will hate you. Are you and I prepared to be hated? And the hatred today is not just an expression that's thrown around loosely. There is sometimes physical repercussions of this you may find yourself getting shouted down by a group of people who, if, they're, if they were free to do it, might physically try to attack you for your views. I don't mean to sound extreme. And again, I didn't really mean to go on this today. But you and I need to recognize the days in which we're living and not fool ourselves into thinking we can hide from it. It's going to cost us, and we need to be ready for that, just like they were then, just like Paul was preparing them. They were lack of knowledge of moral things or they have a moral blindness. And this, again, is because of the blindness of their heart. That word blindness there speaks of being calloused. Now, I'm a drummer and a guitar player. Um, And when I don't play guitar or drums for a while, the calluses that I have built up on my hands from playing begin to go away. But the goal is to have those calluses so that your hands don't hurt, your fingers don't hurt when you're fretting strings, your hands don't hurt when you're holding drumsticks and that kind of thing. Calluses are seen as a good thing there because they toughen up and numb those areas of your hands so that you can just keep on playing and not hurt. Musicians like that idea, and we hate it when they go away because we've got to build them back up again. But when your heart gets calloused, that's a profoundly bad thing 
That means it's become numb and hardened to feeling. It becomes insensitive. It's not good. It's a terrible thing. And this is what's gone on. Their hearts have become calloused and unfeeling. He goes on and he talks about how they are now past feeling. Again, the condition of someone who's lost, but ought not be the condition of someone who's saved. Uh, in ministry, which by the way, we're all in ministry, not just me, not just the folks that maybe have a title of some kind, we're all actually in ministry. So here's a word to you as fellow ministers. The Bible would encourage us, passages like this would encourage us, Jesus would encourage us in the Gospels we see when he talks about such things. You and I need to be tough-skinned, but soft-hearted which means we have to be willing to take a lot on ourselves when the world hates us and fights against what we have to say and what we're doing and our perspective and our worldviews. We have to be willing to take that because we love them and want to see them saved. I'm thankful for those who were that way with me, and I'm certain you are thankful for those who are that way with you, and God's calling us to be that way with them. Soft-hearted but thick-skinned. Not hard-hearted, and soft-skinned. That's what the world is currently. They are past feeling, recognizing the wrongness of this, and they are so soft-skinned that all it takes is a slight little bit of a, of a fear of cancellation, and they're fully on board. That's why a parent can bring a child to a drag story time. That's why a parent can feel like they can hand over their their kids and just feel like, okay, well, if that's what they're learning about, I guess that's what they're learning about without any sense of what is right or wrong because they've been numb to it and they don't want to face the repercussions of standing against it. You and I are called to be the exact opposite. Again, a difference between those who are lost, those who are found, those who walk still according to the ways of the Gentiles as opposed to those who don't. Um, the blindness of their heart who are past feeling, verse 19, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And I would include in here uh, where he talks about the old man in verse 22 uh, growing corrupt according to deceitful lusts and this whole idea. The idea of giving themselves over to lewdness or unbridled lust and excess. Again, I don't have to go into great detail to explain what that speaks about, but it leads to uncleanness, or it's 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 expressed through uncleanness and greediness, impure morals and motives and covetous desire for more. There's an almost insatiable desire for these things upon those who are lost. Now, again, for believers, if, if someone claims to be a Christian and is living in the ways we've been describing, we have reason to believe they're not actually a Christian. If somebody claims to be a Christian and they're, again, uh, bringing their kids to drag shows or whatever. We have a good reason to say, maybe not. Maybe you're not a believer. Now that sounds judgy, doesn't it? I don't know the person's heart. Is it possible that somebody could be so screwed up spiritually that they believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved by faith through grace? They believe that but could still have no conscience about doing those things. Is that possible? Look how hard you have to search for a verse to justify that. Okay, well, Paul did say all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Yeah, that's true, but there's a point at which someone is just saying there's something they're not. Look, I'm an apple tree. No, you're not. You're a pear tree. I'm a good tree. 
You know, this is why James says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. A lot of people confuse James and thinks that he's talking about a salvation by works. He's not. He's talking about a salvation that works. I can tell you I have faith, but if you can't see it, you have reason to question. And at the very least, we should not be comfortable with somebody who bears no fruit. We should not feel like because they said they're a Christian, because that could mean anything, if there's not a way to tell. We should at least not be comfortable that they actually are. I think we said it last week. We know Lot was righteous, but we sure didn't know it from his own time. It was, what, three, three, four thousand years, well, two thousand years later, three thousand years later when Peter writes about it? Now we know. Would you have known it from the story? No. So is it possible? Yeah. But boy, I sure wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Thank God we get to verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. In other words, well, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Those things in no way bear resemblance to what you would have learned from Christ. To live in that way is something that Jesus would never have taught anybody or led anyone to feel like it was okay. I find it fascinating that Jesus could speak so clearly about sin and about those kinds of things and could and, and unbelievers could feel comfortable around him. He was able to somehow remain completely pure, holy, separate, other, but put himself in the midst of not just a, a wicked generation, but literally at a, at a dinner party with some of the most outcast people within that society who among sinners were seen as the worst kind. That's the calling we have. That's really uncomfortable, but that's the calling we have. Because if we don't stand in the midst of them and shine light, where will they see it? What does light look like? It looks different than the darkness they're used to. That's what we mean when we talk about what a Christian's life looks like. Now, again, this is a very different kind of a message because it sounds a lot of do-oriented, works-oriented. It's not. Paul doesn't give a list of things we're supposed to do, does he? He simply talks about what it means to be a believer and to depart from those things that we once were. Remember, those things that we used to walk in. Matter of fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about all kinds of ways of sinful lifestyle and that. And he says, such were some of you. Now, fascinating, he's talking to the Corinthians when he says this. He's still in the midst of, answer, of, solve, of, of addressing all of the sinful issues they dealt with as a church. He doesn't really get to the good stuff where he's talking about the doctrinal questions they were asking until chapter 7. In chapter 6, he's still correcting all the problems. But he speaks of them in the past tense. This is what you once were. Positionally, that's how you just were, but now you are something different, positionally. And so naturally, then the expectation is 
you ought look different outwardly because you have been made different inwardly. Um, I drive a 2013 Ford Expedition. It's a Haas. There's this little thing on the back of the car that says flex fuel. Now, I was completely unfamiliar with the idea of flex fuel. Unleaded, sure, got it. Regular, back in the day, got it. Flex fuel. So I was really tentative the first time I put it in the car. Okay, it says it takes it. It's cheaper at the time, at least. I don't know what it is right now. But but I put it in there, and I was a little concerned. Is it going to run as well on this other fuel? Because it's made to run on something, right? Okay, so I did, and it turned out it ran well. It runs on unleaded, runs on flex fuel. That's great. What if I put water in there? It's not made to run on water. If I put water in it, it doesn't function like it's supposed to. Things are made to operate a certain way. When you put the right stuff in, it functions. Put the wrong stuff in, it doesn't. When a believer is walking in the spirit, as opposed to walking in the flesh, a Christian illuminates the room. A Christian speaks words of wisdom. A Christian speaks conviction in a world that so desperately needs to hear it. When a Christian's walking in the flesh, those things go away or they become hypocritical. It's important that we function as God designed us to as believers. That's why we spend time in Bible study. It's why we spend time in prayer. It's why we not only have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, but we invite him to take us and to make us more like Jesus. Have all of me. This is... I am firmly committed to the idea that following Jesus and living the Christian life because we are so deeply in love with him we can't do otherwise is a far greater motivation than telling you you're not living Christian enough. I hope that's what you're getting from this because if you're getting the other thing, then I apologize to you. Because if I just tell you what you should do, then you're going to feel like I'm the standard for you now. And I've misrepresented the Lord. But if you come to appreciate the life of God that we've been invited to live, that the world is alienated from, we, by contrast, are not alienated from the life of God. We're called to plumb and explore and dive more deeply into it. This is the greatest joy and privilege of a Christian. If that is our motivation, will we be perfect? Of course not. This isn't about perfect or whatever. But we will walk in a way consistently that is different than we once did. I know if you, uh, you know, I know if you look at your own life and you say, you know, I remember what I was like before. I mean, some of you got saved at four years old, you know, and it's like, you know, not too much water went under the bridge in that case, you know. Man, I remember when I stole that toy from my sister. I was just the worst kind of sinner. Um, you know, some, but some of us, you know, came along a little bit later. And there were some profound things in our background that we had the full, total, unbridled capacity to justify and even see as a good thing. And we know now what we were guilty of. We understand just how awful the things that we did and therefore where our hearts were, the things that we were, how bad that really was, how awful, how offensive to God, offensive to ourselves even now. We know. It's like, Lord, thank you. 
I'm not there anymore. That's not what I am anymore. It's not just not what I do. It's not what I am. I'm not that person anymore. And the fact that I could say that to somebody that I might have heard in that time, if I met them today, 30 years later, and said, I remember you, and I know what you did to me. I could apologize to them with the deepest conviction, and I could with equal conviction say, I'm so thankful that I'm not that person anymore. That doesn't help you at out anymore. It doesn't change what I did. But i that's what I was. I did that to you, and I'm so sorry. But I'm not that anymore. That's not what I am. Well, that motivation leads me to never want to do that to another person again. You don't have to tell me that. You don't have to give me a list of rules. You don't have to say, okay, here's, here's what you need to do. No, I, I just, I, I know what the difference is now and I want to be over here. I want that. That's what I deeply desire because that's, that's more like Jesus, whom I love deeply and I would never want to bring his name through the mud. Do I? Sure. Do you? Sadly. But I don't want that. Boy, do I not want that. I'd love to be able to stand before the Lord and say, you know, from the din- from the minute you saved me, got a perfect track record. I just, I, I, I didn't want to mess up at all. And I just walked as, I can't say that. I can't. Thank God I don't have to. Positionally, practically, boy, do I still want to. You know, that's just the motivation. And that, I think, is the ultimate impetus for holy living. Not because I have to, because I want to. Not because if I don't, I'm going to fall out of God's grace. Thankfully, I won't. But I don't want to walk so close to the periphery. I want to walk, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to straddle the fence. I want to run as close, I want to walk as close to the house as I can. I don't want to risk. I want to know that I'm walking in such a way. I want to be able to point to the scripture and say, okay, boy, my flesh wanted to go that way, but I know this was the right way to go. That's what I want. I desire that. You don't have to tell me that. That's, that's what I want. You know, it's again, like any relationship, it's hard not to think of a marriage relationship in this example. You have to tell me to try and treat my wife nice because if I don't, there'll be repercussions. What kind of a marriage is that? I want to, she wants to, you know, that's, that's, I mean, not that our flesh never gets in the way, but, but we want the right thing. We want the best thing we want, you know, and no one has to really tell you that. I mean, if we do, they call that counseling, right? But it's, but the idea is to get... You know, the idea is to get past that back to the place where you want it, right? So this is the motivation. And again, I, I'm, I'm saying this because I want to make sure that I haven't led you to think the other thing. The motivation ought to be expressed purely just because you know how much Jesus loves you and what he did for us. I just want to live for him. He doesn't have to tell me to. I want to. But you've not so learned Christ. Again, these things that we were talking about, this is not what he's called us to. We never learn this from Jesus, obviously. But rather instead, if indeed, as he goes on, if indeed you've heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then here we go. That you put off concerning your former conduct. There it is again. The idea of our conduct changing. Putting off that old conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Again, that's where we once were, right? Again, Romans 7 and 8. I know these things still reside in me, but I don't want to be this. I want to live in such a way. Help me, Lord, to do that. But the idea is that I want to put off the old man and all of that corruption that comes with it. And instead, rather in verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I love that. 
in the spirit of your mind. There is a distinction uh, biblically when we talk about things like the heart and the mind, uh, the way we think and respond in those things. And there's also the heart, this idea of that innermost. Actually, it's, it's uh, the word cardia speaks of heart, but sometimes in, in the Old Testament you see this a lot, where the word for heart is actually the kidney. Love the Lord your God with all your kidney. Now, that sounds funny to you and I, but the kidney is like at the center of your person, at the innermost bit of who you are, from the deepest place, from the center of who you are as a person. Love God that way. That's the idea. And so the idea of being renewed in our heart or in our mind, these things are often seen as kind of distinct, but they're not as distinct. We ought not make them so far apart that they're two totally different things we need to work on. No, I want my heart and my mind to be fully committed to walking with Jesus. I want that. I want it for you too, but it starts with me wanting it for me. I, I want that. I want my mind to be given over to the things of God. Matter of fact, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul once again writing, I beseech you, I urge, I am begging you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or I like how some of the versions say your spiritual act of worship or service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The idea of your body being given over as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, he has, he has redeemed me. I am his. That includes my body, my physical person, myself, my actions. I belong to him. I want it to be an offering to him. Again, this is the desire, right? People would come and worship and they would bring offerings to the Lord. Well, Paul here says, take that mindset and adopt it to your person. Put yourself, as it were, on the altar. I can never resist the joke. They say the problem with a living sacrifice is that it has the potential to crawl off the altar. And we do. But we adopt the mindset that I, I want to be the offering. I want to be that which God takes hold of and has all of me. Now he goes further and then says, what about your mind? The renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That thinking, that place where your worldview resides, that place where you reason through how you approach life and how you integrate your faith into every part of your life. Uh, give yourself and your way of thinking. You could easily think of the, the, the way of thinking as being among the most intimate elements of, uh, by the way, Carl and Debbie are not sick of this message. They have to go somewhere today. So they warned me ahead of time. Don't silently judge them. That's a... Uh, I've had enough of this. No, it's not that at all. They told me ahead of time. So, uh, but, uh, uh, now the rest of you, I don't know. If you get up and leave, I might take that personally. But no, but, but the idea of your mind being that place where you reason through your beliefs, your, your, again, integrating of your beliefs into your life and all this kind of thing. Submit that to the Lord that he might transform it. That's what the word, uh, renewal of your mind speaks of the idea of transforming. In other words, I want that which is about the most that makes me, me consciously to be given over wholly to the Lord. If, if I'm viewing the world in a way that is not the way you view the world, Lord, 
It's the let your will be done on earth, part of the will be done on earth and kingdom come and all. It's I want your ways to be done here, which means I want to adopt that. I want to think that way. I want to respond that way. The renewing of our minds implies that it needs renewing, right? If we're if if someone is in this world, then the mind can't be left behind in this process. Matter of fact, it's often been said that my heart cannot rejoice in that which my mind rejects. The two ought to be on the same page. I want to love those things that I know to be beautiful. I want to respond from my heart to those things that I understand are from God. I want to think through that which God would have of me, and I want to put my whole heart into it. There's no real separation between these ideas. That would be sort of an internal schizophrenia that is non-biblical. I want to be wholly given over to that which is him, both in my heart and in my mind, fully given over to him. Lord, change my mind where it needs to be changed. Help me to see things differently if I'm not seeing them clearly. If there's any part of me that is seeing things through that lens of darkness that still may reside in the flesh, then clear that up that I might see it your way. I'm committed to that. I want that. This is what we've learned from Christ, the idea of a full 20-point makeover inside and out in the life of a believer. The examples given in Joshua, it's often the, 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 the substance of a lot of sermon material where um, in both two, two grand mistakes were made among the Israelites as they entered the promised land. Um, one is that they entered but didn't conquer all the giants that existed in the land. Some were left behind to ultimately give them all kinds of trouble later. The other problem was that two and a half tribes, uh, what, uh, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, I think, were the two and a half tribes that stayed on the other side of the Jordan, didn't cross in. They helped fight the battles for a bit, but then they settled on the other side. They, they, they settled on the side that didn't have the water barrier from enemies coming, and they paid the price. We don't want to do that in our lives. We don't want there to be some pocket, Lord, this is all yours, but I'm just going to hang on to this. This is the part that still brings me some measure of satisfaction apart from you. What? No. I want you to have it all. Take my every thought captive. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my my God and my Redeemer. I want you to have it all. Back in Ephesians as we finish. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, notice here, Paul doesn't go into a list of things that Christians should do, per se. He simply describes the lostness of those who are still in darkness. And he says, be thankful you're not in that anymore. That's not what you are anymore. Again, we don't look at that and say, well, I'm better than the unbeliever. I'm better than the sinner. In in terms of quality, no. Am I better off? Yes. Thank you. There's a thanksgiving that comes from knowing we've been pulled out of the miry clay and that our feet have been set on a rock. No longer am I in this muck, in this quicksand of the world. Now I'm able to see from an entirely different place. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That excites me. I don't want to be what I once was. I don't want any residual semblance of that to exist in me anymore. Sadly, it still comes up. Oh, but thank God I see it for what it is. Now I see it as something despicable and to be done away with. I don't want that. 
the pride that resides in my heart, I want the Lord to expunge it. Every time I walk away from a conversation and I, I think of something I said that might have caused a division or might have been arrogant or something like that, I'm like, oh, that's still there. It sickens me. I'm not above it, but it makes me sick. I want to fully put on that new man. Think about that. It's much like what Jesus did inwardly when it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gave he took something away from us and gave us something in exchange. There's a similar idea in this as well. Put off, cast off, as it's, as it's described in some passages, the word is translated, but it means to set aside, lay aside, leave behind, and discard it. Let it go. And instead, take on, put on, like a garment. The, the idea of here, I'm getting rid of this old tattered thing that is just a constant reminder of everything that I was. Take it off. Don't let, don't let, don't find warmth and comfort in that anymore. Get rid of it. And instead, put on Christ. Put on the new man that is made by God in true righteousness. Find comfort in that. The only way we do that is when we find ourselves fully committed to that. Because if we're still holding on to the old one, then the, the new one doesn't fit all the way like it should. It's cumbersome. It doesn't feel right. But we let it go. It fits perfectly. It's exactly the one that God made for us to put on, the new man. I'm going I'm to stop there. We read Romans 13, 14 this morning. I'll just read it again here as we close. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is not just a command. It's, it's like a, uh, it's about the most liberating approach we could take to our life with God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Okay, I want to do that. Again, my salvation is not contingent upon that. I'm thankful. He's already taken me. He's got my heart. But I want to live for him because I want to. I love him. And I want him to be pleased with my every day. I want him to look at me. When it comes, I want to, you know, I always joke and say, I wish he'd come like now because I'd be doing this. <laughs> I want to be doing this kind of thing when Jesus comes, right? It shouldn't have to be making sure for this hour I'm in this spot. Okay, prime time, Lord, now's the time. It shouldn't have to be this. Lord, I, w- I want to be, I just want to be in a place where I'm not satisfying the flesh. I'm not pursuing something that's not you. I, I just, I just, and I don't want it to be because I'm trying to make sure I time it right. I just want that stuff to be gone. I'm so sick of it. I'm so tired of being wearied from it. I just, I'm just done. Lord, help me more and more every day to put on Christ Jesus. I want that so desperately. I hope you do too. But Father, we just thank you for the fact that we can ask for such things and that you will oblige, that you will help us. We know your desire is for us to be separated more and more from the world and instead more and more like Christ, that we be pulled closer and closer 
into his image. You ask us to surrender these things. You ask us to put off and to put on. You ask us to make no provision for the flesh. But we thank you that even in asking these things, you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we might walk in him and therefore not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Help us to take full advantage of he whom you've given us to dwell within us, to seek to walk in the Spirit, to ask him each day to convict us of those moments where there's a fork in the road and we have a choice to make. When we're on our computers and there's a website that opens in that moment, pray that the Holy Spirit would prod us and help us and convict us and for us to follow his leading in that. When the world stands against us and says, you're not loving because you're not going along with what we call good, help us to walk in the Spirit in that moment. And not in the flesh lash out in anger and resentment and bitterness, but somehow in that moment to respond like Jesus would. Father, we need you more desperately than we know. Help us to know it that we might cry out to you, that we might cling to the working of the Holy Spirit within us, that we might avail ourselves fully to him, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we know the beauty of the pure waters you've invited us to drink from, to be free of the consequences of so much of what we once were and what we once did, to know that we stand redeemed in your sight, but we can also live a life that reflects that glorious truth. And let it all be based in our love for you. Father, we praise you and we thank you for all of your generosity toward us, your grace. And we thank you that when we stumble, and where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, that grace abounds even more. Thank you, Father, for these words. We thank you for your servant Paul having the boldness to say it. Give us the boldness to receive it. Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and stand?
Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. Thanks for coming this morning. We're glad you're here. If uh, anyone needs prayer afterwards, we invite you to come on up. I've got oil as well if we need to pray for you. Um, uh, home group leaders, if you'd stick around uh, for uh, a few minutes, maybe about uh, noon, we'll go ahead and get you together and start passing out the books for the studies. But uh, God bless you this week as you walk with him. It's a wonderful privilege to be a light in this world that the world might see and ultimately come to him. Amen? Amen. God bless